Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, We're going to leave the show today with a big, big story uh, that the Washington Post first reported and that once again shows us that that, uh, Georgia truly is uh, in the heart of the uh, ongoing uh, investigation of whether or not uh, Donald Trump and his allies uh, violated perhaps criminal law in their efforts to overturn the uh, 2020 presidential election. Let me introduce the panel so we can get right to that story. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my partner on the Tuesday show, and she joins us today. Hi, Tamar. Glad to have you back with us. We missed you while you were on vacation last week, so we're glad you're back. Thanks so much, Phil. Looking forward to it. Um, We're also joined today by um, Chauncey Alcorn, who is a reporter for Capital B News, um, which is a relatively new news service that uh, focuses on stories about African-Americans in politics and in uh, general news. And uh, Chauncey, I've really enjoyed getting a chance to uh, read uh, the content on the Capital B website, and we're awfully glad to have you with us today. Happy to be here again, Bill. Um, We're going to get to a story that you posted uh, early this morning about Herschel Walker and his chances uh, to uh, beat Raphael Warnock, uh, and we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, But first, let me also introduce two of GPB's finest, uh, Riley Bunch, public policy reporter for GPB News. How are you, Riley? Doing good. You know, big news overnight. (laughs) Excited to talk about it. Huge. And Stephen Fowler, political reporter for GPB, who also, uh, in addition to his reporting for uh, GPB News, is the host of Battleground uh, Ballot Box. Hi, Stephen. Good morning, Bill. Um, All right, let's get right to it. Tomorrow, I'm going to actually read a couple of paragraphs of this Washington Post story, and then uh, we'll all uh, discuss it. Uh, The headline is fake Trump electors in Georgia told to shroud plans in secrecy email shows. And here's the story. A staffer for Donald Trump's presidential campaign instructed Republicans planning to cast electoral college votes for Trump, despite Joe Biden's victory in Georgia, to operate in complete secrecy, an email obtained by The Washington Post shows. I must ask for your complete discretion in this process, wrote Robert Sinners, the campaign's election operations director for Georgia, the day before the 16 Republicans gathered at the Georgia Capitol to sign certificates declaring themselves to be duly elected. It goes on to say your duties are imperative to ensure the end result, a win in Georgia for President Trump, but will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and uh, discretion. And, and then tomorrow, we're also told that sinners instructed these 14 fake electors when they arrived at the Capitol to uh, tell security there uh, to lie about what they were uh, uh, doing there, that, to tell the security that they were there for some other reason. I, I don't recall off the top of my head what they were supposed to say. Tomorrow, this is a huge story. Absolutely. You know, and for me, lately, I've been tasked with covering the Fulton DA's investigation of the 2020 elections here in Georgia and whether Trump and his allies uh, were illegally meddling. And immediately upon reading this story, my first thought is that this is huge for, for prosecutors in helping them establish criminal intent of these, um, you know, alternative electors. They need that in order to convince the jury, um, you know, when it comes to charges like forgery, conspiracy to commit election fraud, criminal criminal solicitation to commit election fraud. Um, and this could be huge in helping establish that a crime might have been committed. Um, 
And, you know, it, it goes to the fact that, you know, this idea that they were told to keep it secret, you could see a prosecutor arguing in court that you must have known if it was wrong, you know, it, for you to, to tell people to keep it secret. Of course, you're hearing from a lot of these folks who were involved in that. Uh, you mentioned Mr. Sinners there, um, you know, who said, no, not at all. You know, we let, I believe it was David Schaefer's lawyer who said, no, we let reporters in. We told them what was going on. Uh, but I think this is lighting alarm bells all over the DA's office. Yeah. Uh, we, I want to talk in just a minute about uh, the, the Schaefer attorney, David Schaefer, the, the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, and one of those fake electors. But And we'll talk about uh, what his attorney said about reporters being invited uh, to be at the meeting in a minute. But, but Stephen, one of the reasons I think this story is so big, and certainly if, if you think it we're overplaying it, I'd, I'd be glad to hear your take on it. But we also know now from the Washington Post that these fake electors are going to be highlighted uh, most likely on the first day of, of the public hearings uh, by the January 6th committee, which will start on uh, Thursday evening. So uh, they're making it one of the centerpieces, Georgia and the six other states that elected a, a, a fake elector slate. Stephen? Right, right. So you have to remember that uh one of the reasons that people were at the Capitol on January 6th is that they wanted to try to stop the electoral college count of the lawfully elected electors from Georgia and other places. And Republican lawmakers were gathering up enough people to object to the counts, and people there were trying to stop the count or stop the steal, as they said. And part of that had to do with uh, this false thinking that there could be an alternate slate of electors and that somehow if this group of 16 Republicans signed a piece of paper, put their name on it and tried to deliver it to Washington, D.C., that if enough lawmakers objected to Georgia's Democratic slate, that they could just slip in this Republican slate in like it was legal and real and true. and It would change the outcome of the election and change the results. So this was kind of setting in motion some of the bigger steps that ultimately led to thousands of people storming the Capitol on January 6th. So to establish the timeline and to establish that it wasn't just a spontaneous group of people, a groundswell of people just happening to show up at the Capitol, I imagine the January 6th committee will use instances like Republicans meeting in secret at the Georgia State Capitol to show, like Tamar said, that, hey, you know, something probably not above board if you're telling people to sneak around but B, that this was thought out and planned out well in advance and not just a bunch of people that happened to be there. Um, what's interesting about that, Riley, is uh, also Robert Sinners, uh, whose email we're talking about now, said that he was working at the direction of senior Trump campaign officials and Georgia Republican chairman David Schaefer when uh, he set out this email as they planned this slate of fake electors. And we should also point out very quickly that they sent this fake slate to the Library of Congress, which is the repository for uh, electors, uh, uh, slates of electors, which may in and of itself have made this an illegal action uh, because we know these were not legitimate electors. But but here's what I'd really love to follow up on, Riley. Uh, the attorney for David Schaefer says, well, no, this was always above board and open. We invited the media to be there. But in fact, we know from Greg Bluestein's reporting that he, in fact, came across this meeting he didn't understand why they were behind this group of Republicans were behind closed doors. And when he first asked them about it, they lied to him about what they were there for, he says. Now, eventually they did uh, come out of this and talk to reporters. But uh, this notion that they were more than happy to do this above board is really uh, contrary to what uh, Bluestein saw. Well, I mean, the more information that comes out about this, you know, fake slate of electors and what happened at the Georgia Capitol, the more interesting it is, right? Because we have to remember that upstairs at the exact same time, the Democratic Party was certifying their, their election results to send to D.C. Um, and then it, exactly right, you know, when Greg Bluestein and others noticed that there was this closed door meeting um, in the basement of the Capitol, kind of confused about what it was about. And, you know, reporters weren't initially allowed in. Um, they were uh, eventually allowed in some print reporters, some TV reporters um, after biz, after 
conversation had happened in the room. Um, we don't know what that conversation was, but I think it's so important to, you know, point out that this is such crucial information, this shroud of secrecy. The fact that they that really stood out to me, Bill, when you said that they were instructed to misdirect security guards and take they said they were taking meetings with Brandon Beach and Burt Jones. Burt Jones yeah. is who is now the lieutenant governor um, GOP nominee. Right. So what happens to him when more when more of these investigations come out? So many questions. But this new information that it was shrouded in secrecy, especially by Chairman David Schaefer. You know, there's been a lot of criticism and concern about the direction that he's taking the Republican Party. It's just there's so many details that are coming out right now. Chauncey, uh, the Republicans met in secret, at least at first, on the same day, of course, that the legitimate electors, the electors who uh, uh, had been chosen to be Biden electors, were meeting uh, to uh, confirm that uh, their slate, so there were these dual elector meetings going on. One was real, uh, the other wasn't. And Chauncey, as I said at the very start of the show, This really does, once again, uh, combined with the Brad Raffensperger phone call that's become infamous, just find me 11,000 plus votes, that George is right at the heart of much of this investigation of uh, possible uh, criminal wrongdoing by Trump and his allies in terms of trying to change the outcome of the election. And as Stephen Fowler said, Chauncey, uh, all of this led and fed the fuel for the flames of the January 6th insurrection. Yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty scary stuff if you've been following this. A lot of people, you know, have kind of on the right have kind of poo-pooed this and called like uh, made it seem like it's a witch hunt. But in actuality, we were really on the cusp of, uh, you know, a few people changing their minds about this, uh, including Raffensperger um, and Kemp. And, uh, you know, we could be looking at a very different situation in this country. Um, and more to the point, uh, why are these things important now? Uh, people are, you know, saying are questioning that. You know, these are Donald Trump is one of the leading candidates to uh, win the Republican nomination uh, for 2024, and uh, there's no there's no guarantee that this could not happen again. So it's very important that we get to the bottom of it, um, and hopefully the January 6th committee uh, hearings will will accomplish that. Tomorrow. Yeah, I certainly would not be surprised if this features very prominently in the January 6th committee uh, hearings in the coming days. Um, I would not be surprised if this comes up in the Sultan DA's investigation. She, uh, DA Willis recently confirmed that she is looking at the fake electors. It's also worth reminding folks that the Justice Department is interested in these fake electors as well. We know that, that uh, federal prosecutors have have questioned uh, many of the Republicans. I believe there are about a handful who were initially um, slated to be Republican electors, but ended up dropping out at the last minute. We know that many of those folks have been taught, have been uh, spoken to. And so certainly this is something that, that will play into that investigation as well. And whether to kind of move forward with any sort of charges against former President Trump or any of his allies. We know the Justice Department has been kind of reticent to get into that, but but certainly this will play into their ultimate decision. You know, Stephen, um, it, th- there are those who wonder whether or not Fonnie Willis, depending on what happens with their special grand jury and, and what they recommend, and then what Willis does with their recommendation, whether she would really be inclined to indict Donald Trump or not. That remains to be seen. But people like Burt Jones, other fake electors, David Schaefer, people who are fake electors may be much more vulnerable, assuming that the charges can be proven uh, that they committed uh, or alleged to have committed criminal wrongdoing. They might be um, much more vulnerable to actual indictment, yes? Yeah, I mean, think about kind of the hierarchy of people that we're talking about here. It's going to be an incredibly high bar to indict the former president of the United States for actions that he directly or indirectly did in the days after the election. But the lower you go down the totem pole and the more specific instances you have, say, like Rudy Giuliani showing up and lying to state lawmakers at a fake hearing in the days afterwards, you know, the more specific you can get with examples and the more kind of uh, outside of the orbit of somebody who is the most powerful person in the world, arguably, 
the more convincing you can probably be to a jury that laws were broken and violated. You know, 16 people meeting in secret, some of them party functionaries, some of them just other people, you know, might be an easier sell to say, hey, you know, the chairman of the Republican Party broke these laws by doing this action in this way is probably a lot easier sell than the president of the United States meddled in Georgia's elections and committed conspiracies and racketeering and so on and so forth. Um, Riley, we should add to this the fact that uh, David Schaefer is uh, under pretty significant scrutiny by uh, members of his own party, uh, not only because of this fake slate of electors. There were Republicans who were asked to be a part of this slate and chose not to do it, including a former chair of the Cobb County Republican Party, including Johnny Isaacson's own son. Um, but, but Schaefer led this effort. Uh, and now he's under fire, too, uh, because uh, it became pretty clear he was choosing sides as the chairman of the state party uh, in primary election campaigns, which is really something that a, a state party chair is, is usually circumspect about not doing. Yeah, that's absolutely a concern. And I think it drives down to such an essential, like the essential question that we talk about the Georgia Republican Party all the time on the show is what is the future of the party, right? Is it going to be led by Republicans who are still so loyal to Donald Trump, so still rooted um, in kind of his false allegations about the 2020 election? Do those members of the Republican Party have a way to chart Georgia Republicans forward. And I think that's such a huge concern, right, for people like Kemp, who is trying to unify the Republican Party in Georgia behind his candidacy to beat Stacey Abrams in November. Um, and, you know, Chairman David Schaefer has been under fire for things like this for a while. Does that mean the Republican Party is going to take action and kind of try to out him in some way? You know, only time will tell. Uh, and Chauncey, what I should have added to that is what Schaefer did do, it appeared to many people, uh, was to endorse, was to work quietly to help David Perdue in his effort to unseat uh, uh, Brad, uh, uh, Brian Kemp, uh, Jody Heiss. In other words, he seemed to be on the side of the, uh, the Trump candidates. And, and that, given the way in which those candidates were badly beaten, uh, in primary races uh, makes uh, Schaefer even more vulnerable, I think, to challenges by other members of the party. Absolutely. I I've, myself have attended a, um, a couple uh, Republican campaign events. I know how, uh, from you know direct experience, how um, strong the um, rhetoric is around election fraud and election integrity and the, the uh, pro-Trump wing of the party. Um, internally. But yeah, there's civil war within the uh, Georgia Republican Party. Um, it appears that uh, Schaefer is, appears to be on the lo losing side of it, um, as uh, Brian Kemp um, and Brad Raffensperger have, uh, you know, handily won their uh, their races against their primary opponents. So going forward, it's going to be uh, interesting, the role that um, that Schaefer and others play um, in the uh, as we approach the midterm elections. Uh, just a couple things to close off this uh, part of our conversation. Number one, tomorrow, I, in terms of the Fawny Willis investigation, the special grand jury, I think she told you, you've done some really uh, great reporting, talking with her, that she could imagine the special grand jury coming back with a recommendation. They don't have the power to issue a true bill, an indictment, um, uh, within, for instance, like 90 days, I think, Correct. Yeah, she mentioned that the other day in an interview with Yahoo News. Uh, I think that's extremely sunny. Just knowing how many of these folks are reluctant to talk, I think she's really going to have a fight on her hands, especially when it comes to bringing in a lot of Trump allies who might not want to testify, especially folks who are formally connected with the former president, uh, maybe some of his legal representation like Rudy Giuliani, uh, folks like Mark Meadows. I could really see a fight on her hands. It should Trump fight executive privilege. Um, so I think 90 days might be pretty darn sunny. Uh, you know, the special grand jury is authorized to meet through May 2023. Uh, but she mentioned she, she could have a decision on whether she wants to bring charges or not as soon as, as this fall. Again, my, my thought, having watched this pretty closely, is that that's pretty optimistic. 
but but you never know. She's shown just how quickly she's trying to get witnesses in to come and testify before this special grand jury. She was supposed to have a, a half dozen current and former aides to Brad Raffensperger come in this week. That's been delayed. That'll likely happen in the weeks ahead. She also has Attorney General uh, Chris Carr coming in. We know at least two Democratic state senators are coming in. So she clearly is moving fast and uh, wants to get this done and dusted. Uh, but we do have reason to believe that her delay with the other people who were supposed to testify this week has is not uh, out of some concern that they will or will not testify. It's more about a logistical issue, to the best of my understanding. Yeah, exactly. Based on my reporting, that's what I understand as well. So those same people one, uh, will be coming in in the, the weeks ahead. Uh, and one last item on this. Remember, uh, I've already mentioned it, but it's worth repeating. Thursday night, the January 6th committee will hold its first of, we think, six public hearings in which they intend uh, uh, Chauncey to start laying out the evidence that they have compiled uh, as to what the uh, what happened in terms of January sixth at the state cap at the at the United States Capitol and all of the events like Georgia leading up to it, Chauncey. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch that uh, hearing Thursday night. Absolutely. Uh, the thing that I'm really curious to see is you know what Republicans and um, you know conservatives are are saying and doing as a result of this. I mean this if. Could you imagine if, if the, the other side of the aisle, if the Democrats um, had tried anything close to this, it would just be nonstop screaming bloody murder on Fox News. So it's just interesting to me, um, you know, this, is, this could all be for naught um, if the Republicans uh, take back power during the midterms and where that's going to leave the January 6th committee is going to be an interesting point. Um, some people have suggested that nothing, there's not going to be much um, additional accountability. A lot of the indictments that we've seen uh, by the Justice Department, that those will either con- um, be discontinued or um, somehow in- interfered with. So I'm just curious to see what the, how this is going to play out um, um, going forward and uh, what this will look like if Republicans do uh, take back the House and or the Senate um, in November. Riley, one last word before our break. I just think it'll be interesting to see if there's any new or more additional information coming out about Georgia as a state in these hearings, right? There's so many things. The Trump's phone call to Brad Raffensperger, this new elector information, Marjorie Taylor Greene's emails, like that. if anything else comes out about Georgia, say it's going to be really interesting to watch. Okay, um, why don't we do this? Uh, Why don't we uh, take a break, uh, clear the table, and uh, begin the next part of our conversation? Um, I think it is important to say that this Washington Post story is very dramatic in terms of its potential impact, but we really don't know at this point uh, just how all of this fits in to the possibility that some of the people we've already mentioned, uh, Burt Jones, uh, for example, or David Schaefer, whether or not they, in fact, are liable uh, for uh, criminal uh, wrongdoing. All of that remains to be seen. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but right now it is a dramatic development in this story. Let's take our first break in the show and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. During the break, Natalie Mendenhall and Sarah Callas reminded me, please plug the Political Rewind newsletter. I'm really bad at that. I don't do it enough. You can get the Political Rewind newsletter in your inbox every Wednesday afternoon. Often, Stephen Fowler and Riley Bunch's reporting is part of the uh, uh, email. I try to write a little uh, a personal note at the top of each uh, one of the uh, uh, newsletters we put out. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletter. There you go, Natalie and Sarah. I've done my duty uh, today. Uh, let's get back to our conversation with uh, Chauncey Elkhorn from Capital B News, Stephen Fowler and Riley Bunch from GPB News, and Tamar Hellerman, of course, from the AJC. 
Um, why don't we spend just a few minutes talking about primary debates that were held uh, throughout the day yesterday. Um, and, and I'm, you know, we're not going to be able to talk about each debate individually. So what I'd like to do, if we can, is talk about themes. Um, uh, Stephen, let me start with you on this one. Um, in There were debates, Republican debates, in both the 6th and 10th congressional districts. And in both of those debates, um, the real uh, point of contention between the candidates, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and I guess maybe in the 6th yeah, in the sixth and 10th, was how conservative are the candidates in these races? Who's the more conservative of the candidates? Yes? Yeah. So, you know, there are three Republican congressional race uh, runoffs, the 2nd, 6th, and the 10th. But really, in the 6th and the 10th, you have um, two Trump-endorsed candidates that finished second in the first round of voting and two candidates that almost were able to win outright but weren't able to get enough. And really, they're all pointing the finger at who's the most conservative in the race. In the 10th Congressional District, which is in East Georgia, uh, trucking executive Mike Collins got the most votes in the first round, and Vernon Jones, a former Democratic state lawmaker turned Trump supporter uh, who's endorsed by Trump, is in second in that. And much of their debate was really just kind of bitter, finger-pointing back and forth, accusing each other of not being conservative enough. Uh, Jones was a Democrat for most of his life before switching uh, he accused Mike Collins of not being conservative and of Mike Collins' dad being a Democrat back in the 70s before switching. Mike Collins accused Vernon Jones of being uh, not conservative for most of his life until he just switched. So really, it was just kind of a food fight over who was the most hardcore uh, conservative for that district. And honestly, the answer is both of them. Uh, they're both very ultra conservative, very uh, America first kind of in the vein of Trump's ideology. So either one of them, if they were to win, would be in the column of the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates type of wing of the party. And same in the 6th District, where uh, you have uh, ethics, uh, former state ethics board chairman Jake Evans, who's the Trump-endorsed candidate there, running against Rich McCormick, an ER doctor who was the Republican nominee for the 7th District in 2020. And much of that race was accusing each other of being moderate and not a real hardcore conservative. So uh, lots of fodder for Republican voters in both of those districts. Tamar, you've got to hand it to a uh, Vernon Jones for having the uh, the what's the word, uh, the gall to accuse Mike Collins of not really being a Republican, given that Vernon Jones has spent his entire political career as a Democrat. I mean, welcome to politics in 2022. None of it is surprising anymore. <laughs> but I think it's worth taking a step back and kind of kind of looking at why folks are, you know, you're insufficiently conservative. Our congressional districts are so safely Republican or so safely Democratic that the winner is ultimately determined in the party primary. The, you know, runoffs are low turnout base elections. Um, they can be pretty unpredictable given the kind of short time frame and the fact that it is so low turnout, but you really are speaking to your red meat kind of party activists, and that's the way to get those people riled up. So that's exactly why, as Stephen said, it's a lot of finger pointing going back to, well, your daddy, you know, did this, or in call, you know, in law school, you wrote this essay that, that, shows that you're not sufficiently conservative. Um, and that's kind of where we are in 2022. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, let's take on another one, uh, Riley, if we can. Let's just point out that in the second district uh, GOP runoff, the debate was less about who has the more conservative credentials and really focused on who might have the better opportunity to knock off Sanford Bishop with more than three decades in that seat. It is a, a more Republican district than it had been in the past. Um, so they didn't talk so much about uh, about conservative credentials. They talked about beating a guy who's held that seat forever. Well, I mean, you're right. There is 
more um, Republican swing in that district now, but also Sanford Bishop is in a more vulnerable place than he has been in before, right? You know, questions about um, his ability to lead the ag committee in Congress and things like that. And so I think that is really their opening when they have the same policy views. Um, They have, you know, the conservative records, right, that we were just talking about, the finger pointing back and stuff, back and forth. But in that district specifically, they have a unique opportunity where the incumbent may be a little bit easier to beat than he has been in the past. Yeah, we're talking now about Jeremy Hunt versus uh, Chris West, who are running against each other. And I probably should point out uh, that we're looking at a runoff election uh, on the 21st. So it's still just uh, it's still a couple weeks away. Um, I think early voting begins on next uh, Monday. I, if I have that wrong, somebody will let me know. But I think it starts on Monday. Um, does anybody have another debate they really think we ought to spend a couple minutes on? Because I'm more than happy to move on. I do think that the Secretary of State uh, debate on the Democratic side is of some value to follow because, uh, Chauncey, that one uh, is uh, between uh, B. Wynn, uh, a former state rep or a state rep, and former state rep D. Dawkins Hagler. And the reason I mention that one right now is um, we talked earlier about David Schaefer jumping in and getting involved in supporting a Republican candidates in the primary. Stacey Abrams has now jumped in and is endorsing a couple of Democrats uh, in in the runoff, and she's already endorsed B. Win in that race. Absolutely. Yeah, this, this, these races are um, interesting for the Secretary of State and Lieutenant Governor's race on the Democratic side, particularly because you've seen um, a, a surge, um, reportedly, of uh, uptick in African-American voters um, this uh, primary election cycle. And uh, that also has coincided with an uptick in candidates um, winning, some of them unexpectedly. Um, uh, Charlie Bailey was one of the candidates that Stacey Abrams has endorsed. Um, He is, uh, during the primary, he was losing to um, uh, Kwanzaa Hall, who is uh, the leading candidate right now. Um, Hall actually skipped last night's debate, which some people thought was a little um, strange or um, were surprised by. But uh, he was the favorite coming out of the uh, on, out of primary day to win this race. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how Abrams' endorsement of Bailey uh, plays into that race, as well as the race with Nguyen and um, D. Dawkins Hagler, who has been in um, Georgia politics for almost as long as uh, Ms. Nguyen has been alive. So that that's going to be an interesting um, um, you know situation as it plays out going forward. You know, it's interesting. Tomorrow we we mentioned on the show yesterday that Kwanzaa Hall. Um, who, by the way, Michael Thurman over in DeKalb County has endorsed uh, on the other side of the equation. He skipped both of the debates that he was uh, asked to participate in, and no one seems to quite know uh, why, unless he believes that his name is uh, so well-known that he doesn't have to worry about uh, being in a, a debate tomorrow. We don't really know. Yeah, I don't have any particular insight, but this is a a man who's been involved in Georgia politics for decades on the Atlanta City Council. He, of course, was tapped to um, fill out the remainder of John Lewis's term after he passed away. So perhaps the calculation is that, um, you know, folks know him. Maybe he only has stuff to lose if he goes in debates. Uh, Charlie Bailey, who, of course, is a former prosecutor who is well versed Mm. in how to interview and attack folks, uh, you know, kind of on his own terms. So perhaps that's the calculation. But but I don't really know. Stephen. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it it is an interesting tactic that we're seeing more and more. I mean, Herschel Walker Mm -hmm. skipped the primary debate. It was also in the insurance and safety fire commissioner Democratic runoff. You had one of the candidates skip the debate. And it's just, it's not a good look for voters to see, you know, voters already don't really get that much information from candidates uh, when they do show up to debates, but just not showing up is just not a good look. Um, And, but I mean, Hmm. for Herschel Walker, it paid off. He, you know, ran away with the field and Kwanzaa Hall, you know, didn't really campaign that much for Lieutenant Governor and ended up being first place in the first round of voting by a wide margin. So we might just be reaching an era of politics where debates uh, matter even less than they used to, and people can just try to circumvent things. But, uh, you know, it also just shows the quirky nature of, say, the lieutenant governor's race, where nobody really knows what the position does. Uh, Nobody knows what it should do. 
So there's not really a compelling case for people to break through and say, I'm going to focus on this issue. I mean, same with the insurance and safety fire commissioner. I mean, one of the candidates that had the most endorsements and money heading into that finished a distant third and didn't even make the runoff. So it just goes to show that uh, it's an unpredictable uh, predicament. Chauncey, you actually filed, have filed pretty recently two stories uh, for Capital B that I think are worth our spending a few minutes on during the show today. One of them is the uh, story that you filed that uh, has headlined uh, Political Reporter's Notebook, These Black Candidates Could Make Election History. And you look at the runoff battles for Secretary of State, Lieutenant Governor, and Labor Commissioner ahead of the runoff. Tell us what you were uh, uh, pointing out in that piece. Yeah, so as we were just talking about, first and foremost, um, it's extremely rare, even in a state like Georgia, um, for um, black candidates to win statewide elections. Um, that uh, is, has been, it's not only true of Georgia, it's true of uh, um, uh, most states in the country. Um, black people make up about 13 to 14 percent of the U.S. population. In Georgia, they make up about 32 percent of the population. They were 29 percent of voters in 2020. So it's a huge voting block. Um, Yet and still, we've only had two, um, uh, by our calculation, only two candidates um, who have ever won statewide office. And uh, why is that notable? Because statewide um, candidates are elected by the entire population and not just folks in a district that may happen to be the same race as you or have a lot more, you know, as, as they redistrict um, areas of the state or draw, re, uh, do uh, redistricting maps you know, they, they can be drawn along political lines. When you're elected by your entire state, it says something. So um, the fact that there's only been two in Georgia, which, which has such a sizable black population, is notable. We have uh, now, due to the primary um, and the runoff races, um, a p- potential for several um, people to be added to that list, including, of course, Stacey Abrams, Juanza Hall, um, and uh, a few other candidates that are running. Um, there was a huge surge in um, black candidates um, throwing their um, their hats into the uh, electoral ring um, on the heels of all the uh, 2020 voter suppression, uh, election fraud talk. A lot of people were inspired to run. Um, that is, uh, I've been told, uh, been a point of contention um, during the primary, uh, Democratic primary, as some have questioned, you know, do the Democratic Party bosses uh, want to discourage um, a lot of, of, you know, candidates having a, a, having a ticket that's too black? Um, if you have uh, more, you know, you already have Stacey Abrams, obviously, who's the uh, uh, gubernatorial nominee. Uh, some have uh, expressed concern about, you know, if, if there's too many black people, that might scare off moderate voters. So nevertheless, it's, uh, it's also important to note because it just shows the changing uh, electorate in Georgia and, and, the, and the increasing role African-Americans are playing um, in electoral politics. And Stephen, do you want to jump in? Yeah, and it's also important to note that Georgia is really a good, like a, a good place for black conservative candidates running for office. We're seeing, obviously, Herschel Walker at the top of the ticket. Uh, with, like, Georgia will have a black senator after this election. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. uh, who that will be. But you also see, potentially with these runoffs, you could have Jeremy Hunt in the 2nd District, who was a black Republican candidate running, could potentially against Sanford Bishop, who's a black Democratic candidate. In the 10th district, Vernon Jones could be a black congressman from Georgia, a black conservative congressman from Georgia. And even in some of the other races, you've seen more black conservative candidates step up in places across Georgia because Georgia, I mean, there's been a lot of growth. There's been a lot of Democratic growth. There's been a lot of like urban metro Atlanta Democratic growth over the last 10 years. But also Georgia's politics have evolved in such a way where there is a I guess the Republicans in Georgia are now starting to grow their tent again and do intentional outreach because they're, as Vernon Jones said on the trail once, uh, Georgia's running out of rural white voters. You know, it's like the grocery store. They're coming out of stock. And so the party's got to grow. And we're seeing that as well with the Republican National Committee opening up targeted minority outreach centers like there's a black outreach center in College Park. There's an Asian American outreach center in Gwinnett County that is doing work to expand the uh, voter base for the Republican Party, but also the candidate base as well. And so, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting uh, election this fall to see because you could have a lot of black candidates 
from both sides of the aisle get into important statewide and federal offices. Really interesting insights from from you two, from Chauncey and Stephen on that. Thank you. I'm going to add a little historical note, since I am by far the oldest person on this show today. Um, In 1984, Governor Joe Frank Harris appointed Robert Benham to a vacancy on the Georgia Court of Appeals. He then had to, he was an African-American. He was the first African-American on a statewide court in Georgia. He then had to run for that seat. Uh, His election campaign was run by a political operative in those days named Bobby Kahn, who went on to become uh, 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 Roy Barnes' chief of staff when Barnes was the governor. And the reason I mention it now, Chauncey, you'll be interested in this, when they had posters made for Robert Benham's election campaign, the uh, posters in the northern part of the state, uh, in the metro area, rather, uh, had pictures of Robert Benham on them. In South Georgia and other rural parts of the state, there was no photograph of African-American candidate Robert Benham. I think that speaks to the kind of history we've dealt with in Georgia and how things are changing uh, in this state. Let's do this. Let's get our final break. This show out of the way. We'll be back, be back with more. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Tamara Hallerman, The Jolt, is reporting this morning that Governor Kemp uh, went out to Athens yesterday and he spoke at the Georgia Alliance of School Resource Officers and Educators Conference out there. He asked for a moment of silence for the 19 students and two teachers killed in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, But then he went on and talked about how we need to tighten school security, how he'd earmarked $69 million to do just that in uh, the budget, and how, of course, uh, he had also uh, uh, signed into law the the, uh, uh, big mental health uh, uh, bill, which provides mental health resources much more broadly to Georgians. But as the Jill points out, Tamar, not a word about the possibility of new gun safety legislation under if he should be reelected governor. And this just tells us what a war we're going to see over uh, gun laws in the uh, uh, fall election. Yeah, I mean, Governor Kemp's rhetoric is very much in line with what we've seen from other Republican uh, governors and, and office holders over the, the last week or so. Um, the, the party right now, it's just not possible to be reelected and to do anything that's perceived as threatening to, to gun rights. Uh, you know, just a few months ago, he urged the legislature, which ultimately passed an expansion of gun rights when it came to, to permitless uh, carry. And so he knows that he can't do anything to, to step on that because to a chunk of his primary voters and to his base, um, that's extremely important. And already he's faced challenges in terms of, you know, especially bringing back the Trump wing of the party, which has uh, been conditioned by the former president to dislike him. So he doesn't want to do anything to, to further upset a lot of those base voters. Riley? You know, I think every time we talk about this, I just want to remind that we had our own mass shooting, you know, not a year ago, the Asian spa shooting. So in in the next year, the General Assembly passed the permitless carry law. But I think one of the quotes that um, the Jolt reported this morning that stood out to me was Kemp telling school officers, the thought of something similar happening in one of our places Mm. of learning is one of the heaviest, one of my heaviest concerns, one that I ask God to guard against every day. And I think that kind of echoes a similar sentiment that I have, too, is it's a matter of time. Right. It feels like a matter of time before something like that happens in Georgia. Um, It it feels like a matter of time before us as journalists are on the scene of a school mass shooting. Right. Um, Yet still Republicans are doubling down on um, not making gun control or not restricting gun control laws more. So it'll be interesting to see also how this issue comes up in the legislative session next year. And of course, Stephen, uh, by the end of the month, the Supreme Court's going to uh, issue its opinion on the New York gun law, 
which uh, won't have that much impact right here in Georgia because we already have permitless carry. But nevertheless, it will focus attention on whether or not uh, the country is going to accept even more expanded uh, gun rights. And that will have an impact on Georgia. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got with the governor's race in particular, you've got two known entities running against each other and a lot of uh, national attention on the race, a lot of nationalized arguments about the race, and both with gun laws and also with the Supreme Court's probable ruling on abortion rights, um, you're going to see a lot of things that won't necessarily change what is going on in Georgia, but will refocus a lot of these big, high-profile campaigns on issues like abortion rights and gun laws, even though you know Georgia's gun laws won't necessarily change based on this. Georgia's abortion law would uh, probably take effect if, based on the Supreme Court ruling. But what you're seeing in, in an environment where what goes on in the country as a whole is increasingly reflected in conversations and campaigns, even at the very, very local level, um, it's just going to be even more fodder for deciding how this election is going to go in November, less so than the specifics of day-to-day life in Georgia. I think that's exact. I think I thank you uh, for those comments. Uh, Chauncey, I want to change the subject. We don't have as much time as I'd like to uh, talk about this, but we will post a link to the story I want to ask you about now. I said there were two stories you've posted. Your your story, Can Herschel Walker Defeat Raphael Warnock Without Winning Over Black Voters, just went up on Capital B this morning. You point out that African-Americans make up 32% of Georgia's population, but just over 10% said they would vote for a Republican U.S. Senate nominee. Just tell us uh, a little bit about uh, your thinking about black voters with a Raphael Warnock, Herschel Walker uh, matchup. Well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the balance of power in the U.S. Senate could get decided this fall by how many black Georgians vote for Herschel Walker. Um, and it's gotten off to a rough start for the Walker campaign. This is kind of a little bit of what some of the Republicans have kind of expressed as their worst fear about um, uh, Herschel Walker's candidacy. Um, and so far, um, there's been a, we know that there's been a surge or a reported surge. It's not official yet. And um, not only um, early voters um, broadly, but also African-American voters uh, they, that typically uh, overwhelmingly vote Democrat. Um, 10 percent, um, I think, voted for Donald Trump um, during the uh, 2020 election. So um, if and uh, there's indications that Herschel Walker um, may be even less popular amongst black voters than Donald Trump was, um, which is I, I find quite interesting as, you know, uh, as a guy who covers race and, and politics. But um, we've seen um, Mr. Walker saying that during, as, since the general election um, for him has begun post-primary day, um, appear on Killer Mike's uh, PBS and um, um, Revolt TV show, uh, sat down with the Killer Mike, who's a very popular black hip-hop figure from Atlanta. Uh, and he got, uh, Killer Mike got a whole bunch of uh, hate on Twitter for that. Like, people just going after him, like, why would you give this guy a platform? Why are you uh, treating him like a serious candidate? Uh, some of that, Killer Mike is a guy who endorsed Bernie Sanders uh, during the 2016 election cycle. Um, he uh, talked, I spoke to him briefly via text um, last week. He talked about that he had, you know, supported Warnock and Ossoff, and he was a little taken aback by uh, some of the pushback that he got for having Walker on. Um, and I think that that just illustrates, like, the on whether, for better or worse, a lot of black people don't care for Herschel Walker. Um, and that may or may not be fair. Um, I think that uh, there's certainly um, some policy reasons for that, that the Republicans just in general are policies. Um, uh, black people don't perceive those policies to be um, to their benefit. Um, there's also some personality um, aspects to it. Um, I spoke uh, briefly with um, Mr. Walker during a, a Republican a Republican campaign event in Cartersville back in April, and uh, we had an email interview with him that we included in the story. And we know we talked about the historical significance of his primary win. He's the first black candidate to ever win a U.S. Senate primary in the state of Georgia. He, if he wins in November, he'll be one, he'd be like one of uh, only a handful out of 1,300 uh, senators in U.S. history. Only 11 have been black, and Walker could be uh, a part of that club. Um, but he kind of, you know, distanced himself from the racial aspect and significance of his uh, primary win. And that, you know, uh, black people 
um, find have race as the central part of their identity. A few research study came out and pointed this out earlier this year. So it's going to be interesting. We obviously um, over the weekend there was a controversy over a gas giveaway, um, which is very interesting for a number of reasons and somewhat funny in my opinion. Uh, there was a, some, uh, a political action committee that um, uh, pro Herschel Walker um, that uh, was uh, their operatives were in uh, um, South Atlanta downtown neighborhood. Um, handing out gas cards. Now, why is that important? Um, the neighborhood was, you know, most people that they that they showed were black. They were giving gas cards to. Inflation is a sticking point for um, for everyone, but African Americans in particular, who are disproportionately impacted by an, an increased cost of living. Um, so the idea is black people are disenchanted with Democrats for inflation and a number of other reasons. And this is a way to try to illustrate that point. And uh, it's, it's a, it'll be interesting to see. Um, if that and the issue of crime, which is also a big um, um, issue for African-Americans, um, both in Georgia and nationally, will play a larger role in this race going forward. All right. Uh, by the way, Tamar, Patricia Murphy said on the show the other day, when Democrats responded to that gas giveaway with such outrage, the uh, PAC that, in fact, gave away $4,000 worth of gas vouchers said it was the best $4,000 they'd ever spent. It seemed like a fairly minor controversy. The Democrats blew up. Yeah, and of course, remember, they've been attacking Republicans for SB202 and not being able to give out water or pizza to, to folks standing in line at the polls. So, of course, they use that opportunity to discuss that as well. Riley, Stephen, I thought, made a really uh, good point on this whole subject of whether, in fact, we're going to see black conservatives like perhaps a Herschel Walker, like a Vernon Jones, black Republicans elected in the fall. That's another thing that's going to be fascinating to watch as we move toward Election Day. Well, it's not only about winning over voters, but it's mobilizing them, right? Um, So I think that's going to be a big question is can they mobilize um, voters of color? All right. Riley Bunch, you get the last word in today's show. Thank you, Riley, for being here. Stephen Fowler, of course. Both of you can be read at gpb.org uh, when you post your political stories. Chance Chauncey Alcorn from Capital B. Tamar Hallerman, always love having you as my partner on the Tuesday show. Thank you all so much for being with us. We're going to get to work now that the show is coming to an end on the newsletter that comes out tomorrow afternoon. Subscribe, gpb.org slash newsletter. Until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Please stay safe and be healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.